Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome back to the ancient world. Episode 34, Democracy and Republic, Part 2. The Athenian delegation arrived at Sardis in the summer of 507 BC. The former Lydian capital, repurposed as Persian provincial capital, had lost none of its power to amaze. The gold-laden Pactolus River still flowed down from the jagged spire of Mount Timolus, home to the ancient citadel overlooking the fertile Hermus Plain. The sprawling palace complex was also little changed from the days of ill-fated King Croesus, though it now bustled with both an army of Persian troops and a veritable army of Persian administrators. Both marked the city's critical role as westernmost capital of the Persian Empire. It was safe to say that the delegation was appropriately humbled, The opulence of the East had long held a perverse fascination for the nobles of mainland Greece, first introduced to Lydian extravagance through the tales of their own Ionian brothers. Confronted with the reality of Sardis, the Athenians were shaken by the realization that even the most far-fetched tales had been grounded in fact. But, of course, they hadn't come all this way just to take in the view. Their need was dire, and there was only one power that could ensure the safety of Athens. In due course, the Athenians were admitted to the lavish throne room of the Persian satrap, Artaphernes, the very man who'd taken the life of Bardia and paved the way for his elder brother Darius I to seize ultimate power. Artaphernes was the latest in a long line of Lydian provincial governors. The first, a Persian noble named Tabalus, had lost his position and possibly his life in the wake of Pactius's Lydian revolt. The next two, Mazares and Harpagus, had put down the revolt and completed the conquest of Anatolia under Cyrus the Great. The next satrap had been Aroates, the noble who tricked the tyrant Polycrates to his violent death. 
But Aroatizid also made the fatal mistake of rebelling against Darius during the Persian Civil War. After securing the throne, Darius had sent a noble named Bagaeus to assassinate Aroatis and succeed him as Lydian satrap. Three years later, Bagaeus had been replaced by Otanes, who'd installed Polycrates' brother Silason as tyrant of Samos. Following Darius's return from Vedic India, Artaphernes had been dispatched to succeed Otanes at Sardis. Accustomed to dealing with the easternized Greeks of Anatolia, Artaphernes found the mainland Greeks an interesting puzzle. Making the logical assumption that he'd soon have to rule them, he'd had many discussions with his advisors on the best means of doing so. Tyranny, of course, was the preferred option, and many Greeks still seemed amenable to a system that often mimicked eastern despotism in all but name. Another promising avenue was their religion, particularly the priesthood of Apollo, thought to be the closest Greek parallel to their own order of the Magi. The Persians were already laying the groundwork to co-opt the priesthood through lavish donations to strategic temples and oracles across the Greek mainland. But the Athenian delegation gave Artaphernes the rare opportunity to probe his future subjects face-to-face and get a sense of both their character and resolve. On this particular day, both traits were in short supply. The Athenians knew the price for requesting Persian aid, the customary donation of earth and water. Believing it to be in their city's best interest, the delegation dutifully performed the ceremony of submission. Upon its completion, Athens had become part of the Persian Empire and had the right to request aid in its conflict with the Spartans. Artaphernes responded that, of course, he'd be glad to help his new subjects. In fact, the exiled tyrant Hippias, now living in Anatolia, had provided a wealth of information on current Athenian difficulties. Before rendering Persian aid, Artaphernes had just one request. The Athenians must take back Hippias to rule their city in Persia's name. The delegation blanched and stammered and, excusing themselves as gracefully as they could, made plans for a prompt return to Athens. Much to their chagrin, the Athens they returned to was an entirely different place from the city they'd left. Their delegation had been dispatched on the heels of Cleomenes' expulsion from the city at the same time that Cleisthenes had been recalled to resume the archonship. Quite sensibly, at the time, the Athenians had reasoned that pursuing dual paths was superior to banking everything on Cleisthenes' untried approach. However, in the months since, the city had committed with revolutionary fervor to the promise of Cleisthenes' reforms. The Athenian delegation reporting back on its tokens of submission and the Persian command to resume the tyranny of Hippias, found their actions deemed disgraceful and met with bitter outrage. 
What need did Athens have of either foreign or native despots, now that the full power of each and every citizen had been unleashed? Quietly, the Athenians sought to bury the whole shameful episode. There was only one problem. By submitting to Persian rule, then refusing Artaphernes' command, Athens had technically entered into a state of war with the Persian Empire. But that was a war to be fought another day. For the moment, the Athenians had far more pressing concerns. Under Hippias, the Athenian citizenry had been forcefully disarmed, and the tyrant had relied upon paid-foreign mercenaries to defend his regime. With the threat of Spartan invasion once again hanging in the air, priority number one was rearmament. All weapons seized by the Athenian state were returned to their owners, and enough additional weapons were manufactured or procured to arm every citizen willing and able to fight for his polis. The newly instituted tribal structure also served as the basis of the new Athenian army. Its backbone would be made up of ordinary citizens, motivated by the freedom and self-determination with which they'd been entrusted. Rich and poor would now fight side by side, as members of the same tribe, and, above all, as fellow Athenians. Those who fell would be commemorated on public monuments, listing the name of their tribe in place of their family. The time frame for this entire revamp of Athenian society, military structure, and, most importantly, change in mental outlook, was incredibly brief. Less than a year after the transformation had begun, the Athenians received word of Cleomenes' march on Attica. Soon, they also learned that the Corinthians had joined the Peloponnesian army as it reached the Isthmus, and that combined forces had now advanced northward as far as Eleusis. The Thebans, in coordination, had seized the cities of Oenoe and Hisiae near the Attic border, while the Chalcidians busied themselves with raiding the poorly defended territories of northern Attica. The Athenians decided that their best hope was to deal with each force separately, and the strongest one first. Without delay, the army marched for Ileusus. It's not recorded who led Athenian forces in this initial campaign, but given the eagerness with which they'd embraced the new democratic reforms, it's likely the Athenians had elected a polemarch, or war leader, and a number of strategoi, or generals, from the most experienced among them. There may have been at least some aged veterans who'd fought as young men under Pisistratus and Salamis, along with others who'd more recently battled the Thebans at Plataea. Arriving at Ileusus, the Athenians were prepared to fight for their very lives against a massive and overpowering military coalition led by two Spartan kings. Instead, they encountered nothing. No Spartans, no army at all. Just the wind blowing across the fields and silence. To the Athenians, it was nothing short of a miracle. They would only learn later of the real reasons why the entire Spartan invasion force had utterly disintegrated. 
The first to peel off had been the Corinthians. For nearly a century, the Corinthians had stood at the cutting edge of archaic Greek development. Even after passing the baton to Athens, Corinth had remained both wealthy and powerful due to its strategic location on the isthmus. The narrow path all information, goods, and armies had to use to cross between Attica and the Peloponnese. Whatever reasons they'd had for joining the campaign, ties to the Peloponnesian League, personal grievances, or a chance for glory, they'd reconsidered upon learning that Cleomenes's true aim was the restoration of Isagoras as tyrant of Athens. Recalling their own rejection of tyranny, and fearful of Cleomenes's high-flying ambitions, the Corinthians promptly withdrew their forces from the Spartan coalition and marched them home. This, in itself, was a manageable loss. But Cleomenes's next defection was much closer to home. Whatever rationale he'd given his fellow king Demaratus to bring him to war at his side, the name of Isagoras had apparently not come up. Once aware of Cleomenes's endgame, Demaratus voiced his own objections to both the restoration of tyranny in Athens and the ongoing Spartan occupation that would surely accompany it. For Demaratus, Spartan mastery of the Peloponnese and domination of the Peloponnesian League were the limits of reasonable ambition. Beyond that lay hubris and overreach, and the destruction that would surely follow. After what must have been an extremely heated debate, Demaratus left the field to return to Sparta, a large portion of the army in his wake. With the critical defections of both Corinth and Demaratus, Sparta's allies quite reasonably argued that if even the Spartan kings couldn't agree on the invasion, then what business did they have for even being there? One by one, the allied forces packed up and began the march back to their home cities. The remaining Spartan hoplites loyal to Cleomenes weren't enough to prosecute the Attic campaign even with Theban and Chalcidian aid. Bitterly, Cleomenes was forced to leave Eleusis and march his forces home. Whatever choice words he may have reserved for Demaratus, he also soon proposed, publicly and forcefully, that all future Spartan armies must be led by a single Spartan king. In the wake of their humiliating failure, Sparta's citizens and officials duly implemented his request into law. For much of the next decade, the two Spartan kings would remain at odds. Their rivalry would finally come to a head in 491 BC, when Cleomenes bribed the Delphic Oracle to pronounce Demaratus an illegitimate king. Fleeing to Persia, Demaratus was given a position of honor in Darius's court. In 480 BC, he accompanied Darius's son Xerxes during his ill-fated invasion of Greece. Just prior to the Battle of Thermopylae, Demaratus apparently cautioned the new Persian king on the depth of Spartan resolve. They accept law as their master and they respect this master more than your subjects respect you. Whatever he commands, they do, and his command never changes. 
It forbids them to flee in battle, whatever the number of their foes. He requires them to stand firm, to conquer or die. A few years after his Peloponnesian coalition collapsed around him, Cleomenes tried, once again, to raise an invasion force against Athens, this time with the goal of restoring Hippias to power. Once again, Corinth spearheaded the opposition, and the plan was nullified. In 490 BC, shortly after his expulsion of Demaratus, Cleomenes was declared insane and thrown into prison by his two surviving half-brothers, Leonidas and Cleombratus. His subsequent death at his own hand led to the succession of Leonidas to the Spartan throne. Back in 506 BC, the Athenian army had little time to pause and reflect. While they'd been spared all but certain destruction at Eleusis, the threat was not yet ended. Both Thebes and Chalcis still had armies abroad in Attica. The Athenians immediately marched north to attack the Chalcidians. The Thebans, rushing to the aid of their allies, came upon the Athenians en route. The ensuing battle was the first true test of the new army's effectiveness. The outcome was a resounding victory for Athenian forces, who killed many Thebans, took hundreds prisoner, and drove their shattered remnants back to Boeotia. The same day, the Athenians crossed the Euripus Strait into Euboea, did battle with the Chalcidians, and won a second overwhelming victory. Riding high on their success, the Athenians imposed a humiliating settlement on the Euboeans forcing them to accept a new colony of 4,000 Athenians on their soil. They also took numerous Chalcidian nobles prisoner and carried them off to Athens in chains. When they were later ransomed back to their countrymen, the Athenians hung their fetters atop the Acropolis as trophies. But these weren't the only symbols raised to commemorate that first glorious day of victory. The Athenians also used a portion of the Chalcidian ransom to commission the sculpting of an immense bronze four-horse chariot, prominently displayed at the approach to the Acropolis. The monument was dedicated to the sons of Athens. Sure, maybe all this smacked a bit of hubris. But, to be fair, this was literally, historically, the very first time that an army had fought not for a ruler, not really even for a city per se, but for a political philosophy of personal freedom and equality before the law. Given all the triumphs celebrated before and after, many for far less worthy causes, we really need to pause and let the Athenians enjoy their moment in the sun. Before long, two more monuments were raised and dedicated to the new Athenian democracy. The first was a vast expansion of the Pinks, the traditional meeting place of the Citizens' Assembly, that enabled it to hold up to 5,000 members. The second was a magnificent marble statue depicting the Athenian tyrannicides, Harmodius and Aristogiton, now publicly lauded as early heroes of the democratic revolution. Well, yeah, okay. 
And what about the actual architect of the democratic revolution, Cleisthenes? Where was his huge, awesome statue? It's one of history's great ironies that the Alcmeonid noble had been so absolutely successful in his aims that before long the Athenians had convinced themselves that they'd never needed him in the first place. It was obvious to every citizen that democracy was, indeed always had been, the natural Athenian form of government from the city's earliest foundations. If anything, Cleisthenes might have jogged their memory a bit, but, you know, memory joggers don't exactly rate their own statues. Like an artist erasing with his left hand the line he just drawn with his right, Cleisthenes' greatest triumph was followed almost immediately by the virtual obliteration of his role. His name disappears from contemporary accounts, and he likely died unremarked sometime during the next few years. One hopes that, even in anonymity, the Alcmenid noble found comfort in the positive change his actions had brought about. Not for the world or future generations. He likely had little sense of the magnitude of what he'd accomplished, but at least for the time being in his home city of Athens. Much like Cleisthenes, Lucius Junius Brutus, his Roman contemporary, was both a powerful noble and heir to a huge family fortune. Both men were also well acquainted with the levers of political power. Cleisthenes by family history and personal experience, and Brutus by surviving decades in the treacherous royal court of Tarquin the Proud. Brutus's father, Marcus, had been one of the wealthiest men in Rome. He'd increased his standing by marrying Tarquin's sister, Tarquinia, and linking his family by blood with the tyrants. Blood being the operative word, as once Marcus died, Tarquin did away with his eldest son and seized the family fortune for himself. Feigning dullness and apathy, and doing nothing to either avenge the murder or oppose the theft, Brutus was spared and rewarded with a position near the tyrant's side. In 515 BC, either despite or because of his dull wit and lack of ambition, Tarquin elevated his 30-year-old nephew to the position of Tribunus Salarum, or second-in-command of the Roman army. Brutus thrived in the position, and slowly, quietly, came to earn the respect of both the soldiers and the Roman aristocracy. At the same time, he was careful not to make his uncle feel threatened, and continued to feign ignorance in all personal interactions. In 509 BC, Tarquin launched a war against the Rituli. Knowing of his people's many grievances, Tarquin hoped that returning with rich spoils, plundered from Rome's wealthy neighbor, would quell any thoughts of revolt. A lightning attack against the Rituli capital of Ardea was effectively blunted, and the Roman army was forced to settle in for a prolonged siege. It was during the siege that the fuse was lit on Rome's revolution. The boy with the match was Tarquin's youngest son, Sextus. For reasons unknown, the prince left the military camp and returned to Rome, 
where he went to the house of his friend, Lucius Tarquinius Collatinus. Finding Lucius absent, Sextus tried to seduce Collatinus's young and beautiful wife, Lucretia. When she resisted, Sextus threatened to kill her, then tell her husband that he'd caught her and a slave in an adulterous affair. Sextus was a real class act, but of course, apples don't fall too far from trees. Lucretia was left with little choice but to submit. Once Sextus had left and her husband returned, she immediately confessed everything that had happened, and, as an honorable Roman noblewoman, promptly committed suicide. On top of the countless crimes of Tarquin and his family, the rape and death of Lucretia was the final straw. It was decided, then and there, that Tarquin had to go. The leaders of the conspiracy were all men of noble birth. There was Lucretia's widowed husband, Lucius Tarquinius Collatinus, her father, Spurius Lucretius Trisipitinus, a noble named Publius Valerius Publicola, and Lucius Junius Brutus. Of the four, Collatinus and Brutus were relatives of Tarquin, while Publicola's family had close ties to Rome's legendary founder, Romulus. Together, the four men walked to the forum bearing Lucretia's body, as a large crowd began to gather. Brutus raised his voice to those assembled, and forcefully denounced Sextus for his horrific crime. But, of course, Sextus had only acted in the context of his father's corrupt, bloody, and despotic rule. A rule inaugurated with the murder of Servius Tullius a rule that must be ended if Rome were to regain her honor. As the full meaning of his words sunk in, the mood of the crowd began to change, from sorrow to outrage and, finally, to defiance. Their thoughts must have mirrored those of the Athenians. How had things ever come to such a state? Rome was better than this. Her citizens deserved better. Most of those assembled probably expected Brutus to follow up his speech by staking his own claim to the throne. But instead, he proposed something far more radical, that Rome abolish the hated title of king forever. In its place, he advised that the Romans put their trust in a pair of leaders, elected each year by the Comitia Centuriata from the most noble families of Rome. Unlike kings, these new consuls would serve at the pleasure of the Roman people, act as checks on one another's ambitions, and be fully answerable for their actions. In short, the government of Rome would become a public matter, a res publica, or republic. Brutus's proposal raises a number of interesting questions. Had he cleared this revolutionary approach with his colleagues? Was it a spur-of-the-moment reaction to recent events, or a long-thought-out program only awaiting its proper moment? Was the Spartan tradition of co-kingship a conscious influence, or had the many reforms of Servius Tullius, like those of Solon in Athens, pointed the way toward a possible solution? The answers to all these questions remain a mystery. What is known, 
as well as anything in early Roman history is known, is that the proposal was made, the people of Rome accepted it, and Brutus and the widowed Colatinus, the nephew and cousin of Tarquin the Proud, were promptly proclaimed the first co-consuls of the Roman Republic. So, who wants to tell Tarquin? One way or the other, word of the revolt soon reached him in the Roman military camp outside Ardea. Leaving his army to maintain the siege, Tarquin rushed home to secure his throne. Acting with equal speed to secure their revolution, the co-conspirators sent word to the army regarding the leadership of and reasons for the rebellion. The respect Brutus had earned as Tribunus Solarum quickly won the army over to his side. Like a runner caught between bases, Tarquin found that both the city before him and the army behind him had gone over to Brutus's camp. Like Hippias in Athens, the ex-Roman king decided to flee into exile, along with his two eldest sons, Titus and Aarons, on the expectation that he'd soon return to reclaim his throne. In the meantime, he'd console himself with thoughts of the revenge he'd take on his treacherous and apparently not-so-dull nephew. By the way, Sextus kind of drops out of the historical record at this point, and we don't really know what ended up happening with him. Let's hope something unpleasant. Back in Rome, the consuls quickly ended the siege of Ardea, wound down their war with the Rutuli, and brought the troops back home. They fully expected that Tarquin would raise an army to attack the city as soon as possible. But, in fact, the tyrant's first gambit was diplomatic. Tarquin sent ambassadors from his new Etruscan stronghold of Syria to recover his family's personal belongings from the city. Wanting to act honorably, the Roman Senate considered accommodating his request. While they debated, Tarquin's ambassadors approached several prominent Roman citizens in an attempt to win them over and facilitate the ex-king's return. When the conspiracy was exposed, those implicated could not have been closer to the new regime. Two of the accused were Brutus's brothers-in-law, and, even more shockingly, another two were his very own sons, Titus and Tiberius. Outraged at the betrayal, Brutus ordered the execution of everyone involved. In his official role as consul, Brutus looked on, without sentiment or mercy, as his brothers and sons were put to death. It also kind of goes without saying that Tarquin didn't get his stuff back. In repayment for his deceit, Tarquin's former property was handed over to the Roman people. At roughly the same time, Brutus was forced to bow to public pressure and agree to the exile of his friend and co-consul, Lucius Tarquinius Collatinus. With Tarquin barely gone, many Romans were jittery about any of his relatives holding power. Having proved himself incorruptible by the family executions he'd just carried out, Brutus effectively got a pass— but Collatinus, stuck with the unfortunate middle name Tarquinius, pretty much had to go. In his own way, Collatinus showed his dedication to the New Republic by not making a fuss and dutifully going into exile. He was replaced as consul by the other co-conspirator of noble rank, Publius Valerius Publicola.
Even as this drama was transpiring, Tarquin was forging alliances with the Etruscan cities of Vae and Tarquinii, appealing, respectively, to their hatred of Rome and his own family ties. Soon, Tarquin marched their combined armies against his home city. The ensuing Battle of Silvia Arcia was the first test of Republican strength and resolve. Opposing forces were roughly equal, and it appeared that the battle might go either way. However, at the conflict's end, the Romans emerged victorious. Their greatest loss was the consul Brutus, dead on the field. Tarquin was unable to savor even this small revenge, as his own son, Aaron's, had also been slain. In retrospect, Brutus had been a fairly odd fit for a popular revolutionary figure. In life, even those seeing through his feigned dullness judged him severe and inflexible. As Plutarch put it, like steel tempered too hard. He was supposedly uneducated, a man of action as opposed to contemplation, respected rather than loved, and given to violent outbursts of rage. Yet the reforms he proposed showed both compassion and insight, and likely grew from an understanding of both Roman nature and the possibilities inherent in Tullius's reforms. Seeing his older brother murdered at an early age, raised in a treacherous royal court by the family of his killer, subjected to constant humiliation and abuse, and finding his only refuge in playing a dull, apathetic fool— it seems like precisely the kind of upbringing designed to breed a monstrous tyrant. Yet, in a way, it's also strikingly similar to the early life of the Roman emperor Claudius, playing the fool for Caligula to protect his own life, then, when finally given power, acting with a remarkable amount of wisdom and restraint. At least, you know, for a while. Which is another interesting fact about Brutus's rule. Despite his oversized legend, he only ruled Rome, in partnership with first Calatinus, then Publicola, for a few months. Of course, during those months, he managed to not only found the Republic, but also sacrifice the lives of his sons and brothers, then his own life, to the Republic's defense. Combine that with his noble, honorable, and taciturn nature, and you'd be hard-pressed to find a more ideal paragon of Roman virtue. Fittingly, his death was commemorated with a year of mourning by the women of Rome, and the raising of a statue on the Capitoline Hill. Brutus, stern and unyielding, with sword unsheathed, would be the defining image of the new republic. Next episode, with Brutus dead and Calatinus exiled, the defense of the Republic would fall largely to Brutus's surviving co-consul, Publius Valerius Publicola. Almost from the start, Publicola would be forced to contend with both Tarquin's ongoing plots and the Roman people's fear of his own royal ambitions. We'll also return to Greece and Persia as the final years of the 6th century BC play themselves out, and watch as the seeds are sown for the coming conflict between the two great Mediterranean powers. All this and more next time on The Ancient World.